This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is Coronacast, a daily podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Wednesday the 13th of January and today we've got a special guest for a very important issue. That's right. We've been getting heaps and heaps of questions about lots of different variants of the virus that are circulating around the world. And there's rumours that some of them are much more transmissible than the original version of coronavirus. So with us today, we have Professor Edward Holmes from the Marie Bashir Institute for Infectious Diseases and Biosecurity at the University of Sydney. What a mouthful. Welcome, Eddie. (laughs) Welcome. Yeah. Hi. Nice to be here. So, Eddie, let's just uh, start with the basics here. The virus has been mutating since day one. And what we've been told consistently when we've covered this on Coronacast is, particularly from groups like the Bedford Group in Seattle, is these are variants that people think are behaving differently, but in fact it's human behaviour that's making the difference rather than the variants. We're going to talk today about three variants, but we'll start with the one that's first noticed in Britain, where people are starting to say, well, this one is truly transmissible. Just give us a sense of history and where we've arrived at with this new variant. Yeah, so initially, as you said correctly, the virus has been mutating since day one, and that's absolutely expected. RNA viruses like coronaviruses, they mutate all the time. So it was completely the norm that we saw mutations arising. And yeah, some of those may have increased infections a little bit, but probably not too much. And it's probably human behaviour that's driving the epidemic. Since about September, late September in the UK, we've now seen a new variant or a lineage or a strain, we want to call it, that's actually characterised by not just one mutation, but a lot of mutations. It's picked up maybe 17 or so mutations in one virus genome. And that particular lineage or strain that is spreading extremely rapidly. And the really compelling thing for me is it's not just spreading rapidly in itself, but it's replacing all the other strains or variants in the population. And that suggests it's got some advantages, fitter, it's doing better, it's transmitting more readily. That's now become the completely dominant strain in the UK, particularly in the southeast UK around London. And it's now spreading slowly to other countries. Today, I noticed that like 45 different countries have that new variant in it, including Australia, obviously. It's increasing freaks in Ireland and Denmark. And the estimates appear to be that it increases this famous R number that I know you've talked about in the past, this reproductive number, how many offspring the kind of virus leaves, by between 0.4 and 0.7, not 0.4, not 0.7. It doesn't sound like very much, but in fact, in terms of transmissibility, it's actually a lot. So this virus really does, this new lineage does really appear to be spreading quickly. So it goes from a sense of 2.5, that one person could spread it to another two and a half people, to well over three people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Do we know where it started? No, we don't. So again, it was first detected in the UK. There are a variety of hypotheses about where it might have come from. And I should also say that it may not have originated in the UK, but the UK does so much genome sequencing, they may have detected it first. One idea that's really not proven, but is quite interesting, is that some people have developed what's called a chronic infection. So normally we have a coronavirus, we think about it's a, you know, 14 days or so. Some people may carry it for much longer weeks or even months because their own immune system isn't that good. And that doesn't clear the virus and it keeps replicating it in a single individual. Uh, if you look at some other viruses like influenza or noroviruses that cause kind of gastric problems, in people that have these weakened immune systems, that get these chronic infections, the viruses in those people can pick up lots and lots of mutations. So there's some 
suggestion. It's just an idea that maybe that's what's happened in this particular case. But where it comes from is still actually a bit of an open question. We do keep hearing in the news that it's 70% more transmissible than like the classic coronavirus. Where did this number come from and how much weight should we give to it? Yeah, there's a kind of complicated history with the measures people give to try and describe how much more infectious particular variant is. I'm not entirely sure of the derivation of 70%. And there have been a variety of numbers floating around. Some people say it's between, you know, 50 and 60 or 70. I'd actually remove those numbers. I think they're not really helpful. And just go back to the core of the science. And as Norman said before, that core is about what it increases to the R number. So you'd say from 0.25 to over three. And that's the really much more precise measure of how much more infectious it is and how much quickly it's going to spread. So I'd focus on that rather than these numbers about 70% or, and, and also, there are always error bars around those as well. So actually they're quite hard to pin it down to a precise number. Let's go to South Africa. So there's a South African going around, which they say, is, well, South African first noticed in South Africa, where they're also doing a lot of genomics, unlike other countries. But this one they're saying is more transmissible. And then there was a study I think last week, not peer-reviewed, which suggested that there's what's called antigenic escape. So when you test this against convalescent serum, the antibodies that are in the blood of people who've had COVID-19, it wasn't very responsive, which is starting to get quite concerning. So we need to add a layer of complexity on that now. And that's not just about the lineage, but about the mutations. And I'll come back to in a second. So in South Africa, it's a different variant. There's a lot less data on the South African one. The UK have sequenced a lot, so there's less in South Africa. And while we, it's definitely spreading rapidly in South Africa, as far as I know at the moment, there's no really good evidence that it's out-competing anything else or displacing other strains. So that's what the UK picture is. You can't quite see that with the South African strain at the moment. But as you said, there's some evidence that some of the mutations that it has may possibly allow it to evade some parts of the immune response. And now it's talk about the mutations. So both the UK and the South African mutations, uh, lineages, both have lots of mutations. They have one in common that what is called a 501 mutation. It's in the spike protein, you discussed that a lot. So they both have that mutation. And that mutation has actually appeared in a number of other locations all around. Well, it actually appeared in Australia back in back in June, July. And in fact, went extinct. And went, and went extinct, exactly because the Melbourne lockdown was hard. That removed that lineage with that 501 mutation. But the South African lineage has a second mutation called 484. And it's also in the spike protein. And that a study you're alluding to, Norman, that was on the preprint, that suggests that this 484 mutation may possibly evade some of the antibody responses a bit more readily than other strains. Now, whether that means the vaccine will not work against it, that's a different question. We haven't got evidence of that at all. And I think most people are hopeful the vaccines will still work. But the South African one, although it may not be spreading displacing other strains, it does have that extra kind of tweak, that 484 mutation, which may be more troublesome in the long run. And there's another strain that's come to light in Brazil or in a part of Brazil called Amazonas, which has a similar mutation in a similar part of the virus, a spike protein, even though they're on opposite sides of the globe. Yes, this is now today's news. It feels like something's happening. It's really quite extraordinary. So now we've got a third lineage appearing in Amazonia in northern Brazil. And this strain, again, this lineage again, has picked up independently those same two mutations, 501 
and 484 and a spike protein. It has lots of other mutations too, but those two, the same two that characterize the South African lineage and the 501 that's also found in the UK. So it's the same sorts of mutations are being picked up all over the world now. Now, why that's so interesting in Brazil, and so I should say this strain from Brazil has also got into Japan because some travelers went from Amazonia to Japan. That shows you what global travel can do these days, right? So Amazonia... So just before you go on, Eddie, yeah. what you're suggesting here is that it's almost like convergent evolution in animals where you get marsupials in South America and marsupials in Australia, but they're not genetically related because yeah. it's a similar environment. That's what you're saying here. Exactly. That's exactly the point. It's convergent evolution. So the question is, what's driving that convergent evolution? This is where it becomes you know, more worrisome. Is it just chance that we now have so many people infected? There's more mutations circulating. Is it just that? Or is it because those mutations are being selected, they're favoured by the virus for some reason? And why Amazonia is really interesting, I'll go back to that, is that the estimates for the prevalence of the virus in Amazonia are extremely high, maybe over 70%. And so there you're talking about a population close to this famous herd immunity level. If most of your hosts are protected because they're immune, the virus is going to be extremely strong pressure to escape from that and evolve around it. And maybe, and this is again just theory, maybe this 484 mutation particularly, that's an escape mutation that's arisen in this area of high immune coverage in Amazonia, and that's allowing it to spread. So is that convergence because you're starting to see these immune escape mutations globally. Not proven, and it doesn't mean to say the vaccines don't work, we shouldn't panic, but that could be what's going on here. So is that something we might see in future seasons then, where, like the flu shot, we need to have updated vaccines each year because of this pressure from people's immune systems? Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think we've known that from day one. I think you can think of two phases in the evolution of the virus. The initial phase, the first phase that we're kind of getting towards the end of now, is that the virus was spreading in a population where everyone was susceptible. Everyone could get the virus. There was no immunity in the population. And then basically anything went. It's like salad days for the virus. It could spread to anyone. As immunity rises in the population, hopefully by vaccination, but in some countries because of infections, actually all getting immune because they're infected, that's going to push the virus into a second phase where to keep moving through the population, it will need to reinfect hosts it's infected previously so they can get pushed by evolution to escape immunity. And ultimately, that's going to mean it will escape the vaccines we're going to use. And that's predictable. And that means we'll need to update the vaccines every so often, just like flu. Luckily, with these new fantastic mRNA vaccines, which have actually been a transformational piece of technology, they should allow the vaccine updates to be much quicker and easier than they are influenza. So whilst we all need updates, which sounds kind of worrisome, I think the mRNA vaccines are really going to make that happen hopefully quite easily. And my final question, Eddie, is given that this virus, obviously, like other viruses, is exquisitely tuned to our behaviour and mutants are being selected by our behaviour and how much virus there is in the community. Is the trend in the UK to extend the time between the first immunisation and the second to three months going to allow a dangerous window for escape in terms of resistance to the vaccine? That is a huge question. And so, as you well know, the recommendations of the vaccine companies are there should be a quite a tight window between the first and second dose, something like three weeks. The problem in the UK is they just do not have enough vaccine, nowhere near. And they have this huge 
public health crisis, particularly the southeast of England. Hospitals are overwhelmed, 68,000 cases a day, and it's just extraordinary. So they are in a really difficult position. And on the one hand, I think they would really like to use the optimal vaccine dosing strategy, you know, once every two doses, three weeks apart. They haven't got a vaccine. So they're in this kind of awful conundrum. What do they do? And I think they're being forced to try and give everyone one dose, hope for the best, and come back 12 weeks later and give a second dose with hopefully more vaccine available. Now, you're right. In theory, and it is a theory, that will select for escape mutations. I can see that happening. But the question to my, you know, I have to ask myself is, given that we're now seeing this happening in nature already in, in Amazonia, maybe South Africa, you know, other countries too, is the UK situation really going to be any worse on top of what we're seeing already? And it's a very difficult question. And I, and I don't really have a simple answer. I mean, we can talk about the theories of virus evolution on one hand. But on the other hand, the public health people will say, well, if I half my dose, I could protect an extra person. So it's a very, very difficult situation to be in. Luckily, in Australia, we're not in that position and we can use the right vaccine dosing. But in these cases like the UK, where it's a public health emergency, they're being forced to, to do suboptimal dosing, which may have an impact on viral evolution. We just don't know. So it's, it's just watch this space, I'm afraid. Well, that's all we've got time for on CoronaCast today. Eddie Holmes, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us. My pleasure. And uh, tomorrow we'll, we'll answer some of your questions on vaccines because a lot of them are coming in. And if you want to ask a question or make a comment, particularly in what Eddie's been talking about today, go to abc.net.au slash coronacast and ask your question, press the ask question button and mention CoronaCast on the way through. And we will see you tomorrow. See you then. 